Okay, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Uh, in 1965, the U.S. Senate appointed a subcommittee uh, to plan for the 20-hour work week that was certainly coming because of uh, technology. Did you know this? The 40-hour work week was about to end in 1965. It was literally going to be cut in half because of the astronomical advances in technology that were now going to free up the 40-hour work week to a 20-hour work week. In fact, summer camps held emergency board meetings trying to figure out how they would stay open all year round to accommodate the incredible influx of Americans that would now have all this free time, right? Uh, one writer said of this Senate's view of reality in 1965, the frenzy displayed an astonishing lack of insight on the part of our forebears. Technological advances have not increased rest. They have done just the opposite, right? Uh, why was the Senate so off in 1965? Why was it? I mean, why, why were they so, their view of reality, so, so, so missing in action? Why? Ecclesiastes 8, you know what Ecclesiastes 8 would say? Because they simply forgot or were ignorant of or underestimated the quest for control in the human heart. Uh, the New York Times read an editorial highlighting this hidden quest for control that's in all of our hearts. Uh, if you live in America in the 21st century, you probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you about how busy they are. It's becoming the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy, right? Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy so completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. And then uh, David Zoll, who in the, I told you all, you want to get this devotional, the Mockingbird devotional, best one out there. Um, he writes, it's true. For a great many of us, busyness has come to serve as a barometer of identity and therefore your self-worth. We are using nonstop effort as a means of comforting ourselves and placating the voices of condemnation in our lives. Ecclesiastes 8 is the quest for control, and it's been around a long, long time. The quest for control is as old as dirt. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. something of a sore throat, so we'll see how this goes. <clears throat> who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. 
Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes? Would you come and work in our hearts? Would you, as in the valley of dry bones, would you clink us back together? Would you put organs back in? Would you put the flesh back on us? Would you make us human again? Would you, through the power of your word, work? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you wanted to dig deep into Ecclesiastes 8, um, you would grab your 0.5 millimeter pencil and preferably a six-inch ruler, and you might even have your name engraved on it. Uh, you would open your big old study Bible, the one that has large print and large margins on the side so that you can write in the margins. You would stack all your study aids beside you, your lexicons, your commentaries, your focused articles like the use of spirit in verse 8. Does it mean wind or the human spirit? So you'd have an article on that. You'd have your Bible dictionaries and your specialized reference works for historical, literary, theological, and cultural background and expertise. And then when you do all of this for Ecclesiastes 8, the first thing you're going to notice is that the popular study aids skip chapter 8. So your heart starts racing just a tad, and then this is the first clue that you start realizing that something's wrong here, right? That's your first clue. Second thing you'll notice is that most of the technical study aids are no help either. Uh, they all have a different view of what's going on in chapter 8. Uh, this is... Your second clue, <laughs> that something's wrong going on here, right, in chapter 8. The third thing you'll notice is that there is one thing, however, that every scholar of every branch that you look at, no matter what type, no matter what shape, no matter what denomination, no matter what tradition, they all agree on one thing, that Ecclesiastes 8 has the most difficult verse, or Ecclesiastes 8 has the most difficult verse in all of Ecclesiastes, it's verse 10. Now, you want to skip it too right? And chapter 9 looks really, really good. Like, maybe we should just move on to chapter 9. Here's the point. We are on our own this morning in chapter 8. We're on our own. So here's my take. Here's how I see chapter 8 working. I want you to look at verse 17. The big idea is found there. How do I know the big idea is found there? Because cannot find out 
or cannot control is mentioned three times. Three times in one verse, there's a repetition, which is revealing the dominant thought, the supreme subject, the big idea of Ecclesiastes 8. It's just that the preacher waited to the very end. He held you in suspense all along, teasing us, working it till he finally revealed what it is. What's the big idea? The big idea is inability. Specifically, recognizing your inability. There is a location or a destination that has actual spiritual GPS coordinates called recognizing your inability. It's a real place. And all of Ecclesiastes 8 is trying to take us into verse 17. It's trying to take us to where you actually feel deep in your bones your own inability. Feel it. Recognize it. Breathe it in. Take it into your soul to get inability deep, deep, deep into your bones. So the rest of chapter 8, which is kind of confusing if you just were to look at it at face value, that just seems slipshod. It, it seems like an encyclopedia. It seems like a topical index of some strange things that don't seem to be related to each other. But these strange things are all serving the journey or the road into verse 17. They're all trying to push us and pull us and lead us into recognizing our inability. And there are three Powerful pictures that are at work here that are designed to do that. The first picture is social inability, and that's found in verses 2 through 5. One commentary points out how in chapter 7, it ends with a bleak picture of human nature, the universal wreckage of human nature. There's this search that goes on at the end of chapter 7 where the person, the, the preacher is searching for one righteous person in all the earth and finds none, Right? So therefore, in chapter 8, it it seems logical, according to some scholars, that he would then focus on the need for a just social order amidst messy relationships. Because of the universal wreckage, how do we relate to each other? How, How are we managed in our messiness? How do societal structures and leadership and non leadership realities, how are they managed? How are they ordered? And so it makes sense that that he would go to this societal, structured realm. Uh, Social realms include work, they include school, they include business, they include uh, community, they include local politics and beyond that, they include uh, economic realms, local and beyond. Here, Ecclesiastes is highlighting the political realm, particularly of an ancient Near Eastern king and his servants. And here's the point. When working properly, leadership serves the good of others. It's a servant leadership. And servants obey their leaders to the good of everyone. And it's an old word called submission. Verse 2 illustrates it. Look at verse 2. Keep the king's command, submission, because of God's oath to him. This is the leader leading under God right? So a servant leader. But here's the problem. In a fallen, wrecked world, this rarely works. In a fallen, wrecked world, social realms are all messed up. 
So leaders mess it up. Look at verse 3. He does whatever he pleases. No longer a servant leader, no longer serving the good of others. He just does whatever he darn well pleases. Look at verse 4. And the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Right? Then you go, the people are messing it up. Look at verse 3. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. So messy social realms make us feel small. They make us feel weak. They make us feel powerless and not in control. In other words, messy social realms, the realms of human structures and workings and relations and dynamics of justice and injustice, it makes us feel inability. There's a great new documentary on Netflix called Winter on Fire. Ukraine's fight for freedom. I, had, I just have one word for it. It's, it's incredible. Um, the Ukrainian people, I spent some time there in the 80s, uh, want to join a free Europe. They want to be free. They are right. If you follow, Ukraine is right here. Europe is right here. And the Soviet Union or Russia is right here. They want to go here. So 800,000 to a million people peaceably marched or walked through the streets of the capital city of the Ukraine, Kiev. Uh, you had, they had no weapons. There was no thuggery. There was just walking. They, they were chanting, live free with dignity, uh, using all the old ideals of freedom and, and uh, a, a representative kind of government and democracy, stuff we kind of take for granted. And they're like, live free. And then they were saying, shame, shame to all the abuse that the leaders have given them over the years, literal abuse, right? And they sang movingly their national anthem, and you had, you had uh, children, and you had teenagers, and you had college students, you had moms and dads and babies and strollers, you had grandparents and elderly, you had all classes of the society, ex-military, you had doctors, you had uh, athletes, you had uh, artists and musicians, you had professionals, you had teachers, every realm, social realm in the Ukrainian community was represented. The president is a guy named, was a guy named Yanukovych, and he said no. No. And I, warning, if you do watch it, what happens next is greatly disturbing. Yanukovych Yanukovych sends an elite police unit called the Berkut. And they went in with uh, metal batons and shotguns and snipers on the rooftops. And it was in, in HD full color, absolutely bloody and brutal and breathtaking, and you just couldn't take your eyes off it. The whole time I kept asking myself, what do you do? What do you do if that's you and your family? What are you going to do when your presidential candidate loses next year? What do you do when your child's teacher doesn't like your child? and makes your child's life miserable. What do you do um, when you suffer loss because of the evil and injustice of someone or others who just 
happened to have the leadership, the power, the authority. What do you do when people engage in power plays at your school and at work and in the church and in the community that hurts you and hurts those you love? What do you do? The second picture is personal inability. You catch that? Look at verses 6 through 8. The preacher goes right to the heart and where it hurts for you and me. Look at verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble, this is his misery, this is his pain, this is his distress, this is his heartache and his heartbreak and his hardship. And it's not named. It's just global, universal suffering and pain of a human being. It lies heavy on him. Personal pain is a heavy burden, and most of the time, it buries you. How long, O oh Lord, we cry, right? When will this end, O oh Lord, we cry? The most instinctual thing, it's, it's, it's innate in us, it's the most instinctual thing to do when you're in pain. Do you know what it is? What is it? Try to control it. Flee it. Fight it. Try to figure out its future. Pain pushes inability so deep into your bones that it absolutely adds pain to your already existing pain. Look at verse 7. No man has power. That literally you could say no man has control. To retain. It's a double whammy. To retain means to control, to manage, to exercise mastery over. So no man has control to retain control of the spirit. Now you can, it could be the metaphor of wind or it could be the human inner life, the human psychological makeup, your heart and your mind. Some folks say it's one or the other. Some folks say it's both. I don't think it really matters. Take your pick. Um, so no man has power to control the spirit or power over the day of death. The point is this, controlling your present releases and reveals the great inability that we all experience. When pain comes into our life, the most instinctual thing to do is control it. And then as you try to control it, you're revealed and it is revealed and your inability is revealed so painfully clear that you don't know what's worse, your original pain or now your inability to do something about it. Now, it's also futile to control your present, but it's also we can't control the future. Look at verse 7. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? Did you know that fear and anxiety are all attempts to try to control your future? Worry is an attempt to control your future. Did you know that catastrophizing, you know what that is? That's a great word, I love it. When you, you look down in the future and you make it worse than it actually is or you spin off a reality that may or may not be true, but you're catastrophizing. Never forget when Nancy and I were dating, we were in, we were in Switzerland and we were bike riding and I just started, as I'm getting to know her, I'm realizing she's so funny because I, I she anticipated every dangerous thing that was going to happen 
on a bike. Like, we're going down a hill. Watch it, watch it, watch it. This is going to happen. And I was like, okay. And we are complete opposites, right? She's catastrophizing. Well, what is catastrophizing? It's an attempt to control the future. I mean, what is quitting and giving up and giving in and escaping? It's an attempt to control the future. What is performing and perfecting and pleasing? It's an attempt to control the future. Third picture, moral inability, verses 8 through 14. So the preacher is upset. He's upset in a big way because bad people are not getting what they deserve. Self-righteous church people are getting affirmed and honored. Do you see that? Look at verse 10. Notice these are people that are going in and out of the holy place. These are people going in and out of church. And they're self-righteous church people. And they get honored, particularly, says, praised. So it goes like this. Some people in church say to these folks, gosh, they're so controlling and they're so judgmental and they're so arrogant. But boy, are they so spiritual. They're so serious about God and they're so, they're so passionate about everybody keeping all his laws. Other people in the church say to them, gosh, they're so unloving and unforgiving and mean. But boy, do they know their Bible and theology. Let's make them leaders in the church. And the preacher looks at this, and he's pulling his hair out. And then you got the, there's the unchurched bad people. Did you see that in verse 12? So the bad people are not getting what they deserve. But there's a religious kind, and there's an irreligious kind. In verse 12, these are folks that break God's law, specifically a hundred times, he says. But here's the catch. They live longer for it. So in verse 14, he looks at all this, and he says, vanity, or basically my translation is, this is so messed up. No one is getting what they deserve, he's saying in verse 14. But what about those, did you see that, that fear the Lord? What about them? Do they get what they deserve? That's in verses 12 and 13. Do they get what they deserve? Do they have some kind of moral ability that gives them the status of they fear the Lord? In other words, Does the fear of the Lord's status come by working for it? The preacher answers that in verse 11. It's kind of tucked in there. It's hidden. You kind of blow by it. You don't necessarily see it. And here it is. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Everyone has a bad heart. Everyone. So the preacher is saying, if you have any resemblance of being a human being, if you walk like one, talk like one, have eyes and ears like one, speak like one, you have a bad heart. Not just that it's a bad heart, it's fully set, established, rooted, targeting evil. So the preacher says, listen, moral ability for anyone, is a myth. So why does he want to make us feel so 
unable. Why does he want you to recognize your inability? Why does he want me to recognize my inability? Why does he want to take us into verse 17? So socially, societally, personally, morally, here's the answer. Look at verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation, which means the meaning of a thing? The answer is finally given in verse 17. Do you see that? So verse 1 sets it up. It asks the question, and then he goes through this. Who knows what he's going through, most folks think? And then when you get to verse 17, he gives you the answer. Who is like the wise? It took three pictures of inability to get us there. But who is like the wise? Those who recognize their inability are. Those who recognize their inability live wisely. Recognizing inability is wisdom, according to the preacher. Look what it does for you. Look at the second half of verse 1. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Recognizing your inability actually makes you happy and relaxed. Your face shining is the biblical view of the happiest person in the world. It's a happy heart that lights up a face. When the Bible talks about a happy face or a face shining, it is supreme happiness, complete happiness, solid happiness. But then also watch the hardness of your face will relax because a hard face tries to control life. A hard face is nonstop effort. And recognizing your inability relaxes a hard face and changes it. It changes the heart to be happy and affects the face even. So why does inability have, why does it have this kind of power? So everyone here wants to try to get unable. You know, we're all trying to get into 17 now because we're like, I want that. I want that happiness. I want that relaxation. I want that reality. I want to recognize my inability. So why and how does inability have such power? <laughs> Look at the last verse before you enter into verse 17. It's stunning. It's verse 16. Imagine that. And it says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does one's eyes sleep. So he's summarizing the madness of control, the unending nonstop effort, <coughs> the compulsive and the obsessive controlling, the incessant striving, no rest, no sleep, no contentment, no happiness, no relaxation, hard face, hard heart, right? Now, verse 17, then I saw all the work of God. Did you catch it? He doesn't see the work of God until he's in verse 17. He doesn't see the work of God until he sees his inability. Recognizing our inability or the destination of inability is the place you see the work of God. It's not inability that's loaded with power. It's the work of God that's loaded with power. But it's inability that is the soil that you see. It is very hard for us to see the work of God when we are capable, in control, 
striving, working, earning, performing, pleasing, fearing. But when we're in the destination of inability, clarity happens. There's a stillness and a rest that takes place in God and His work. There's a happiness and a relaxation in God and His work. There's control, not in ourselves, but here's the catch, in God and His work. So control is not bad. The desire for control is as human as we are. The issue is, where do we get it? In ourselves or the work of God? The ultimate work of God, of course, is Jesus. So he's the king in the societal social realm. He's the king that actually is a servant king. And he's the servant that actually submits finally and perfectly to the ultimate king, his father. He is social ability because we have none. And then we march to the next picture and you see that he carries the heaviest burden on the planet. The moment he comes into this earth and the moment he dies on the cross, he carries the heaviest burden on the planet on his shoulders from birth to death. And he does what we didn't do. He didn't seize control of it. He entrusted control and entrusted himself to his Father perfectly for us. He's our personal ability because we have none. And then he takes the sin to the cross and he gets what he justly deserves. And he lives a righteous life and is exalted in his resurrection into heaven. And he's exalted because he gets what he justly deserves. And now he gives it to you and he gives it to me because he's our moral ability because we have none. And so now you can recognize your inability and rest in the ability of another. Happiness, relaxation, cease striving, stillness, power, real control.